Well, one of the reasons that I have been uh, so eager to see all of you today is that I'm excited to share with you the epic tale, and it, it is epic, of my day on Monday, an epic Monday. So once upon a time, my alarm clock went off. Then I brushed my teeth. And then I let the dogs out. And then, believe it or not, my wife and I went and had a cup of coffee, customary to Monday morning, and we had a brief chat about the day, who was going where, and who was responsible for getting what kid in what direction. We had a short time of prayer, and then kind of off we went. I got to the office in the morning, uh, made a couple of returned phone calls and emails. I touched base with Dave Mullane, who, along with the team, helped to lead us so well this morning in the singing of God's praises. We talked about the service organization and structure. Also, per the typical Monday, I had an extended conversation with Pastor Nick where we kind of look back and analyze the past week's ministry, what went well, where we can improve, and then, of course, planning for the week ahead. About noon, I headed out to lunch with one of you and had a good conversation about life and ministry and next steps and spiritual growth and formation and that kind of thing. Back in the office in the afternoon, I had a couple of staff meetings with our fantastic team. Somewhere late afternoon, got interrupted by a text message that let me know that Omari, our youngest, had yet another sinus infection, so he had to get on another antibiotic. You know how that goes. So after that all settled, continued a little bit in my study and preparation for this sermon until my wife and I got home about the same time. We were both tired, and so we did what any reasonable couple would do in that situation. We called our friend Manuel from Tequila Halesco and got takeout for the night. We brought it home, and we ate it, and then we cleaned it up, and then we read Omari a Bible story, put him to bed, hung out with our older two for a couple of hours, watched some TV, and went to bed. The end. No, really, that's it. That's the end of the story. That's as, that's as dynamic as it was. And the, and the truth is, while it was a, a good day, to be sure, a fine day, it was a pretty ordinary Monday, just a usual Monday. But a day that, that some might say lacked a, a certain flair, you know, that missing, that uh, je ne sais quoi, I don't know, but just that something very special. And my guess is you guys have all had similar days. Maybe most days are like that. Ordinary, vanilla, seemingly kind of purposeless days. Have you ever wondered if there was anything more going on behind the scenes? Right? Something. Anything of significance or substance. You know, while we're clocking in and out, running our kids around and playing on our phones and falling into bed at night. Have you ever wondered what God is doing while we're doing all that stuff? Where's all the purpose? Where's all the meaning in that? And that's exactly the kind of day and the kind of questions that we come to as we continue our series this morning in the book of 1 Samuel. So I'd invite you to meet me there in 1 Samuel chapters 9 and 10 today. You'll find them on page 231 of your pew Bibles. If you need a Bible this morning, please feel free to use that one. In fact, you can take it home if you don't own a Bible. That'll be our gift to you. We'd love to get God's Word into your hand. 1 Samuel 9 and 10. I'm thankful to Kyle, who read the majority of chapter 9 for us already. And in summary, this text begins with a man named Saul. And, and he seems, at least at first, like a man of some potential. After all, verse 2 pretty much describes him as tall, dark, and handsome. 
So think like, you know, the quarterback of the football team, think the homecoming king, and so who knows? I mean, maybe this, maybe this stud has something to do with all that king business that we just heard about in chapter 8, just maybe. So we're intrigued. But then the narrative takes kind of a turn to the ordinary. This guy, Saul, goes on a, a donkey chase. His father loses his donkey, so he and his servant get together. They go looking around. They're having trouble finding the beasts and are tempted to turn back. And So instead, the servant gets an idea to maybe go find this man of God in the area. I don't know. Maybe he can help. Maybe not. But they decide to go that direction. They gather up a little offering that they can give to the prophet of God, go to the city, and they meet up with Samuel. And then, kind of another surprising twist, they, they get invited to dinner. I mean, that's nice, right? I mean, it's just a gesture of hospitality or what? But Samuel invites them to dinner, and, and he tells the chef to fire up the barbecue, get the coals hot. He gives Saul actually a seat of honor, and then he insists that they stay the night. What is happening? What in the world is happening here? Because it sure seems like this kind of series of very random, disconnected events, doesn't it? But what we have missed are three critical verses. And I confessed, a little Jedi mind tricking, I actually asked Kyle to pass over a few verses when he originally read through chapter 9. Interestingly, the narrative from verses 14 to 18 flows seamlessly. It just picks up, just continues on. But without those verses, we will never understand the meaning of this text. So we look closely at them now. Look at chapter 9 and verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come up to me. When Samuel saw Saul by the seashore, <laughs> the Lord told him, here is the man, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who will restrain my people. Wow. I mean, that changes everything, doesn't it? What appears to be this series of kind of random, no meaning in these events is actually all part of something wrapped up in divinely significant. And so these verses introduce an aspect of God's character and work that drive these two chapters forward. And that's his providence. The providence of God. Kind of a big theological term, um, so definitions might be in order. The Westminster Catechism defines providence as God's wise and powerful preserving and governing of all his creatures and their actions. Similarly, Baptist theologian Millard Erickson defines providence as the continuing action of God in preserving and guiding his creation. So as it relates to, to these two chapters in 1 Samuel, I think we see a handful of features, we'll talk about four, that relate to God's providence. And, and the first are these ordinary days and circumstances that we see, what we might call the venue of God's providence, the canvas upon which he paints providentially. And, and it's in this that we see that our lives are not directed by random, impersonal, or purposeless forces. That, that God is working, actively and intentionally directing the affairs of his creation. 
John Calvin makes a helpful connection when he says God assigns what appear to be random events to his providence. This is his venue, the ordinary days. A second feature or aspect of providence that we see, specifically from verses 15 to 17 in this text, is the encouragement of providence. The great encouragement that we see in God's care and commitment toward his people. Again, from verse 15, God says, I'm going to send you a man. What's he going to do? He shall save. He shall save my people. For I've seen my people because their cry has come to me. So God just isn't kind of robotically acting in this situation. He's doing so in a caring way, in a compassionate way. And what's even more remarkable about this is kind of the real dark spiritual status of the people at this point. Remember, back in chapter 8, the people had just declared independence from God. They rejected him as their king. They had rejected their unique covenant identity to not be like the other nations. And it's even in this spiritual condition that God is eager to save. There's even more encouragement as we see God doubling down in his commitment to them. Did you notice all the, all the possessives that God uses in these few verses? My people. I have seen my people. He shall restrain my people. He calls them his heritage later on. And so while the people were quite willing to abandon God, he was not willing to abandon them. I wonder if you've ever heard of or seen Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting, The Salvatore Mundi. It's an interpretive portrait of Jesus that made a lot of headlines a couple of years ago because it sold at auction for the measly price tag of $450 million. That's a lot of money. But just a few weeks ago, sources reported, including the New York Times, the alleged disappearance of this historic painting. Where's it at? Showings were suspiciously canceled. The staff at the Louvre Abu Dhabi, where the painting was set to be unveiled, said privately that they had no idea where the painting was. Jesus, it seems, has gone missing. And if we're honest, it's pretty easy to think that God has gone missing when we're off kind of chasing donkeys slogging through the ordinary days of life. But what we see early in this text is that he hasn't gone missing. He's active. He's working. And man, does this give whole new meaning and purpose to ordinary Mondays. These are the venue for the providence of God. It's going to cause us to sit up, right, and pay attention because there is more happening than meets the eye. Of course, the encouragement of providence is significant. I mean, just just when we think that God has forgotten about us, just when we think that he's abandoned us, he has not. Because we must remember for the Christian, our union with Christ, our identity as the people of God places us safely, securely, as we heard last week, in his providential care. And so that means when the MRI or the CAT scan returns a result that is terrifying to us, when there's a sudden and unexpected job change, that means when you're going through a season with your children where you just can't seem to get on the same page about serious issues, there's just a great disconnection there. It even means when you have fallen temptation to that sin that you thought was, was dead and gone, God has not abandoned you. 
He hears your cry. And it's even in the midst of all of that mess that his providence is working itself out. It's encouraging to us. And so we have the encouragement of providence, the venue for providence. But some important questions remain of this text. For example, is there any way for us to really recognize and pin down and identify the providence of God? That'd be helpful, wouldn't it? Are there any marks that we can look for to help us identify and then, of course, connect into what God is doing? Well, to get the answers to those questions, we have to read on. In chapter 10, another larger section of text, but please take your Bibles. I'll read aloud, follow along with me. In chapter 10, continuation, Samuel now takes a flask of oil and he poured it on Saul's head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And it shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you'll meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, and another a skin of wine. They will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there's a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. You will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds you to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt sacrifices and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed on him, and he prophesied among them. When all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom, of which Saul had spoken, Samuel had spoken rather, he did not tell him anything. Now Samuel called the people together at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt. And I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today, you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distress. And you've said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near. The tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans. And the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. 
So they inquired of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he's hidden himself among the baggage. And they ran and took him from there, and when he stood among them, he was taller than any of the people from the shoulders up. And Samuel said, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There's none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, each to his own home. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, and with him were men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him, brought him no present, but he held his peace. Again, lots of action. Lots to unpack here, but we focus our attention back on the providences of God, the providence of God, and these marks that we're looking for, the points of identification. I think we see these marks clearly as the Word and the Spirit of God. The Word and the Spirit of God and this kind of wonderful interplay between those two marks. The end of chapter 9 actually tees this up for us when Samuel tells Saul to hang around for the night so in the morning he could make known to him the Word of God or the word of the kingdom later on. So after anointing him, Israel's new leader, he goes to Saul and he gives him his marching orders to save God's people from their enemies. And then he, then he offers up three very specific signs to confirm. Very interesting. First, he's going to meet up with two guys who will confirm that the donkeys have been found. Like, I know you were all very worried about the donkeys. I'm happy to report that they, they have been found. He then go further along, and he'd meet three more men on their way to offer a sacrifice that would give him some bread. And then lastly, he was supposed to go to Gibeah, meet a band of prophets, and interestingly, join up with them. This is the sign that the narrative gives the most attention to, because the Spirit of God was going to come upon Saul at this point, particularly in the Old Testament. Uh, an emphasis on the Spirit's work of temporarily indwelling and empowering God's servants for a particular time and task. And in Saul's case, it was to deliver God's people from their enemies, the Philistines. What's fascinating is that, as important as this empowerment from the Spirit was, we, we observe that it doesn't happen independently from the Word of God. You might have picked up in verse 8 how Samuel tells the newly anointed and equipped leader that after all these signs, he's supposed to go down to Gilgal and wait for more instruction from the prophet. The prophet, of course, being the speaker of God's word. Later, in verse 25, after what might be the most awkward public coronation of all time, uh, Samuel lays out the duties of the king, which is very, very likely a reference to Deuteronomy 17, where a high emphasis and priority is placed on the king's duty to know and to submit to the word of God. In other words, even the king even the equipped king must submit to God's word. This was a commission that Saul struggled with mightily, which we'll see in the coming chapters and, and even here to a degree. And it's with that I, I think about times when I've heard people say, I really, really wish that I could see and experience a real move of the Spirit of God in my life. Something powerful, something special. And I understand the sentiment. What this passage shows us, though, I think so brilliantly, is the deep significance of simple obedience to the Word and Spirit of God. 
Testament believers. We have even a deeper resource than the believers of the Old Testament. We're in as we put our faith in Jesus. We're given the full measure of God's Spirit, right? Permanently, great resource. So every time, by God's Spirit, you put a nagging sin to death. Every time, by God's Spirit, you overcome that temptation. Every time, by God's Spirit, that you produce the fruit of love or joy or gentleness, or you pray for your enemies, or you put your spouse's needs above your own, you are showing a mark of the providence of God by way of your obedience to his word and spirit. And that, that ought to knock our socks off a little bit more than it does. That's special, because that's an expression of the providence of God at work in our lives. These are the marks. We have the encouragement and the venue for providence. But, but there's a final and I think most pressing question that remains. What is the outcome? What is, what is all of this pointing to? Where is all of this going in the end? And I think, I think we see it in this text. I think the outcome of providence is simply the prevailing purpose and plan of God. The prevailing purpose and plan of God. His divine, sovereign will. I mean, think about it. In the end, really. After donkey chases and barbecues, after bands of prophets and curious uncles, nobody really knows what's going on. Saul only kind of does. Samuel only does because God told him. The uncle doesn't know what's going on. The servant doesn't know what's going on because he's been dismissed. The people think, you know, there could be judgment coming as Samuel gathers them together for rebuke. Lots are cast. We have a king. We don't have a king. Where's the king? Oh, he's, wait, he's hiding in those boxes over there. They drag him out, you know, and oh, here he is now. You could just kind of hear the hint of irony in, in Samuel's voice. Oh, look, there he is. There's none like him among all the people. In the midst of all of that, God is still providentially bringing his plan to bear. You notice in verse 24, who actually does the choosing? Samuel says, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so much of chapters 9 and 10 just look kind of like this clustered, discombobulated, tangled mess. You know, it's like, it's like my life some days. Probably like your life a lot of days. Just can't figure out what is happening, what's going on. In the midst of all of that, I think we have the essence of these chapters that teach us that even if life isn't adding up, God's providence is always working out. Even if, and, and many times when, life isn't adding up, nothing makes sense, God's providence is always working out. Again, from Proverbs chapter 19, many are the plans in the mind of a man. Many. But is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Even if life isn't adding up, we can trust and be assured that God's providence is always working out. It um, kind of reminds me of the story of a young man who came from a pretty tough and impoverished background, who dreamed, like many do, of a better life for himself and for his family. So this man worked really hard, he saved some money, and he was able to with a business partner, open a small grocery store in a 
little town called New Salem. Sadly, though, his business partner quickly uh, became entrenched in substance abuse and, and essentially bankrupt the, the grocery store before it even got off the ground. And so this young man devoted the next 10 years of paying off all the debts that were incurred because of this failed dream, this kind of constant nagging in the back of his head and his mind. But after his debts were paid, he went into law and then politics. And then in the year 1860, Abraham Lincoln was elected the president of the United States of America. And it's said that Lincoln was a big Shakespeare fan, and his favorite quote apparently came from Hamlet, which says, there is a divinity that shapes our ends, rough-hew them as we may. A divinity that shapes our ends, rough-hew them as we may. In other words, even if life isn't adding up, God's providence is still working out. Now, one temptation as we think about God's providence is to kind of fall to a fatalistic view of living, right? God's going to do what God's going to do, so what I do doesn't matter. But actually, I think just the opposite is true. We work because God is working. There's meaning and significance because God is working in and among us. So in that sense, his providence is not only a comfort, which we saw earlier, it's also actually a call to action. It's liberating. Listen, I think it's really good news that I am not carrying the fate of the world around in my backpack. I can tell you, it's really good news that you aren't. I'm very, very encouraged by that. And this is very liberating, and it's greatly motivating to live in, in just the beauty of simplicity and obedience to God, all the while entrusting the outcome and the results to his wise providential plan. That's good news for us. Again, from Calvin, I think so helpful if anybody maybe have the stereotype of fatalism, but listen, this is great. If the Lord's gift, he says, of life is a charge for us to keep, let us preserve it. And if he gives us the means to do so, let us use them. This is wonderfully biblical and wonderfully balanced. Even if life isn't adding up, God's providence is always working out. Wouldn't it be nice, though, to know this outcome with a greater degree of specificity. You know, what's the end game? Shout out to you Avengers out there. What is, the, what is the end game of what God is ultimately working this thing toward? The climax of providence. And interestingly enough, I think, I think the scriptures give us the answer. We certainly get a glimpse of it here in 1 Samuel 9 and 10. But if we fast forward a bit in time, we see it even more clearly. This was yet another time in salvation history when God's people were in another great mess, darkness, and great need, when suddenly God bursts onto the scene. The Lord Jesus Christ comes to the earth, God incarnate. He lives a sinless life. He performs some pretty extraordinary ministry, and he even goes so far as to proclaim himself to be the Messiah. All this king business that started in 1 Samuel 8 and 9 and 10 and perhaps even a bit before in Deuteronomy 17. He, he's the one. This is the guy who's come to deliver ultimately God's people, to usher in this great kingdom. And man, did Jesus execute in his life. He was never found hidden among the package. He was actively working, sinless, perfect. Yes, here comes the kingdom. And then 
in a surprising twist, Jesus is delivered into the hands of lawless men. He's convicted in a kangaroo court. He's beaten and he's mocked and he's hung on a cross and then he dies. Wait, 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 wait. This doesn't make any sense at all. Because dead kings don't lead people in great victory. I mean, dead kings aren't good for much more than just, you know, an inspirational memory or something like that. But this doesn't add up. How can he be, how can he be dead? Ah, but remember, even if life isn't adding up, God's providence is still and always working out. Listen to God's word from Isaiah 53. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Acts 2 and 23, Jesus, it said, was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Finally, Ephesians 1, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. With all wisdom, God made to, known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, listen closely, which he purposed in Christ to bring unity to all things, all things, in heaven and on earth under Christ. Redemption, the forgiveness of sins. How is that possible? He's dead, and yet in the mess and the confusion, the apparent confusion, the foolishness of the cross, God is bringing his providence to its climax in the person of Jesus Christ. And in places like Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1 and others, we see according to his good purpose and pleasure to bring unity to all things in heaven, that's everything, and on earth under Christ. So what is the climax of this providential plan? The supreme glory of King Jesus and the salvation of his people. That, that my dear friends, is what God is providentially bringing to bear in your life when your alarm goes off tomorrow morning. Make that your first thought tomorrow morning. The glory of Jesus and the salvation of his people, that is what God's bringing to bear in your life. Wow. So look for it. Wonder at it. Work from it. And rejoice, rejoice that even if life is not adding up, God's providence is always working. Let's pray together. Father, how thankful we are for your persistence with us. You're falling around, wandering around in darkness. You are a God that is true to your covenant word and promise. Thank you for that. Thank you that your good purpose is being worked out providentially in our lives, even in this moment and that the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ as he is preached and proclaimed as King of Kings and Lord of Lords gives us great evidence that you the God of the universe are working right now in our midst forgive us for making too
salvation history points us to the Lord Jesus and to his cross and to his powerful resurrection. We think about those implications together now.